You're listening to Food Confidence, a podcast about approachable health and imperfect food, all for the sake of the next generation. I'm Jennifer Bravo. And I'm Andrea Paul. We are two non-diet health professionals on a mission to empower parents and caregivers in raising food and body confident kids. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Food Confidence Podcast. Today, Andrea and I are talking with our friend Diana K. Rice, a registered dietitian, certified lactation educator counselor, and the owner of Baby Steps Dietitian Counseling. We're excited to bring this episode to you today because we talk a lot about mom guilt and how so much shame exists around how and what we feed our children. And Diana helps speak to that and helps kind of pave the pathway for a more grace-filled experience with feeding our kids, whether that is with picky eating or with something more serious like food allergies. And because Diana's work really focuses on moms, and in particular moms of young kids, we discuss how these concepts of healthy eating and feeding our families really come full circle when we think back to a parent or caregiver's own relationship with food. We hope you enjoy it. Hi there, Diana. Welcome to the Food Confidence Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. We're really excited to chat with you today. You and I know each other from past nutrition and dietetics conferences. And, you know, we do live, what, like halfway across the country yeah. from each other. So yeah. it's always nice to get to chat and catch up. You know, yeah, the, yeah. And I've just been format. loving your show. So I'm so excited yeah. to actually be a guest. Thank you. So to kick off the interview today, the chat today, could you start off by just giving our audience a little bit more information about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am a registered dietitian and I'm also a certified lactation educator counselor. And I'm in private practice and I also do freelance work, freelance writing and consulting. And more or less everything I do comes back to supporting families and particularly supporting mothers of young kids. So I use the epithet, the baby steps dietitian, because, you know, it's a, what I do is a combination of working with families who are in that, you know, period of having extremely young kids, either pregnant or, or babies and toddlers, you know, I mean, up till elementary age. And then, you know, using a small manageable approach, baby steps. <laughs> so, you know, I, I am like you guys, I'm a non-diet practitioner. And really my goal whether I'm counseling or writing, is to help parents support their kids to develop healthy eating habits, understanding that that, that quote unquote healthy word is not just about, you know, getting all your fruits and vegetables, but really having a healthy relationship with food. You know, one, one story I love to tell is that, you know, any new client that I have, if it's a, a parent of a young kid, usually when they book a session with me, they're like, Oh my God, my, I can't get them to eat healthy food. Like, what do I do? And I, I sort of say, okay, let's pause. Your child, what your child eats, your child's nutrition is here. And I hold my hand up around like my mouth. Your child's healthy relationship with food is up here. And I hold my hand up around my forehead. We're never going to move your, what your child is eating, their nutrition. We're never going to use a strategy that moves that above the relationship with food. Because if you don't have the healthy relationship with food, you don't have, you know, a quote unquote healthy eater. So we're not going to hide vegetables. We're not going to force you know, bites, all of those mm. strategies move the nutrition component above the healthy relationship with food. And so I would say that's my bottom line in terms of when I'm counseling families. And then the kind of work that I do with adults, particularly women, particularly mothers, is helping them shake, shake that diet mentality and, mm. you know, focus on their own relationships with food and uh, loving their own bodies or accepting their own bodies, both because I know that that will benefit them in their own lives long-term and because of how it will trickle down to what their kids are seeing and how they're feeding their families. And just overall, you know, trying to support families with, with this stuff is just, it's, it's tough. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a messy, messy world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that's, Honestly, being a mom myself, I think that's kind of the hardest part is navigating, you know, up until you have kids, you're really only concerned about eating your, like the food and your nutrition for yourself, right? Like maybe your partner, maybe your family a little bit, but it's never really your responsibility to feed anybody else except for 
you and then having kids, it's like, oh my goodness, now like, how do I navigate this crazy, messy world? And so having support from people like you is just so imperative because it really does, it takes a village and it takes a world of information to just circulate so that we feel more empowered to just feel good about how we feed our families. So you are a mom yourself. So you are no stranger to the work that you do outside of your office Mm -hmm. because you are in it with two young kids. Mm -hmm. Is that how you got into this work or kind of what, what really piqued your interest in helping families and parents? So it sort of is. I'll definitely say that my own experience as a mom helped me refine my niche in nutrition, but I pursued becoming a registered dietitian because I was always interested in family nutrition, even before I had my own Mm. kids. Being an RD is a little bit of a career change for me. It wasn't what I studied in my first go-round at college. I studied journalism, actually, which certainly informs my uh, freelance writing work. And as I was, you know, going along in media, I realized, you know, I wanted to be focusing more of my work on food and nutrition and, you know, yada, 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 ended up going back to school (laughs) to become a, a dietitian and was able to focus my studies whenever I could, whenever I had the opportunity to choose what I was going to do a project on or where I was going to do my internship, I chose places that had a role in family nutrition because I knew that that was what I ultimately wanted to do, even though I didn't have my own kids. I will say that at the time I was in it because I wanted to, you know, quote, quote unquote, fight the childhood obesity epidemic. And I have, you know, really shifted my perspective on that to be a weight neutral provider and to be focusing more on, you know, what I was just talking about with helping families develop a healthy relationship with food. Wow. So it it does sound like you, you recognize that there has been a shift in your work since becoming a dietitian. Is there anything that you can like pinpoint that really created that shift for you in your work, kind of the perspective from, you know, the very traditional weight centric education that, you know, most dietitians get, including myself, and then just the regular, you know, diet culture that we're all living in. Is there anything that you remember that kind of was a light bulb moment or helped you make that shift? That's a really good question. So I don't have, I've more or less always had a healthy relationship with food myself, which I feel so, so lucky to have, but I did not know that that was the case until a couple of years ago. You know, I I started learning how many people, women in particular, experienced disordered eating. And, you know, I realized that I didn't have that experience myself. And I I don't think there was a light bulb moment. I think it was certainly becoming a mom myself had something to do with it and, you know, noticing the changes in my own body and, you know, thinking, you know, well, I, I've never had a disordered relationship with food b- before. There's really no reason to start, but, you know, these pounds aren't going anywhere. And so I really think it was more of like a, a trickle down effect with you know, a lot of the dietitians I follow on social media sharing more about intuitive eating and health at every size and just feeling like those concepts resonated with me. And certainly in, as my own first kid, you know, started to walk and talk and understand the things I was saying, I realized that a lot of the messages that I formerly preached in working in nutrition, family nutrition, before I had kids, you know, eat your carrots, they have vitamin A to help you see. I realized that you know, with a child in my own house, how that message could be received, which is, you know, well, if I don't eat carrots, am I going to not be able to see? (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) And and so I, I think for me, just all those things started to line up in terms of the messages that I want kids to receive. Certainly, you know, if, if I happen to have a child in a larger body, I would not want to put that child on a diet. So, you know, why would I put an adult on a diet? Why would I put a child, you know, who is in a, you know, quote unquote, you know, normal body? Why should that child eat any differently than a child that's in a larger body? They should both have the autonomy to make their own food choices. And so, yeah, that's a long answer, but I don't think that there was a light bulb moment. It just, these concepts started feeling more, more right to me in terms of, you know, what aligns with my own values. And that's, I mean, I can relate to that quite a bit. You know, like you said, interest in family nutrition and child nutrition has been an interest of mine before I've had kids. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm pregnant now. So 
you know, we all get a glimpse of the, <laughs> oh, yeah. the reality of it in the next, you know, little while here. But it, yeah, it is interesting kind of having that same interest in family nutrition and child nutrition from the get go. Cause I, you know, I think like yourself, I've been very fortunate to have a good relationship with food for most of my life. And also like yourself, I didn't realize that how, how many people had or struggled with their relationship with food and body. And so it just, yeah, it just resonated and made sense. One thing that also comes to mind for me is like the messages that we're giving kids and how, you know, we word those things and how they can kind of, they shift when we kind of, or for me, at least they shift when I became more aware of intuitive eating and health at every size and and a non-diet approach, like, you know, the messages that we're giving kids, are they age appropriate or are they helpful? Mm. You know, are they going to land with kids? You know, the idea that we should be pushing the message over and over and over again of eating fruits and vegetables when like, you, you know, we all know that the relationship with food really should come first and foremost. And I think that's something that's continuously on my mind about like what their kids are learning in school and what they're going to be learning from other adults. And so, you know, hopefully we can make some change in that, in that area. Well, and I I wonder too, because I think parents are so almost ill-equipped with information because we are inundated with diet culture messaging and we are so fearful based on, you know, the the media and quote-unquote obesity epidemic and feeling fearful. And so I kind of wonder how many parents are, it's even on their radar to foster a healthy relationship with food because they're in such fear mode of, oh my goodness, it's my only job to keep my child healthy and, you know, food plays a part. And how do I do this? How do I navigate this? And they might not even really be paying attention to the implications of diet culture because they're, you know, so fearful themselves. I absolutely agree. And I see that a lot. A lot of times when a parent books an initial appointment with me, it's like, okay, you're a dietitian. You're going to tell me how to make my kid yeah. the healthiest eater possible. Let's go. Right. <laughs> right. Let's rewind. Yeah. But that exercise that I told you where, where I hold my hands up and one's higher yeah. than the other, I got to tell you, that clicks for parents. Like, mm-hmm. oh, the healthy relationship with food. And and most of the time, and I mostly work with moms, so I'll, I'll say moms, most of the time, the mom realizes something about herself right. and her own relationship with food, and she doesn't want that for her kid. And so that's right. what I try to tap into when I start talking about these concepts. Right. It's not a, you know, it's not a light bulb. Usually there's a lot to unpack, Yeah, but it does help us get started. But yeah, I agree. I don't think it's on most parents' radar, which is, is why, you know, I, you know, with my background in media, I'm trying to get that message out into the media yeah. more, but you know, it's very nuanced and it's hard to, it's hard to wrap your head around sometimes, which is why, you know, a podcast like yours, I think are so helpful. Oh, thank you. And we're so eager. We heard that you are launching a podcast. Yes. Before we jump, because this is a good segue, let's maybe talk about that a little bit and then we can kind of jump into the nitty gritty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I am launching a podcast in a couple of weeks. And it's going to be called The Messy Intersection. The reason for that is that the tagline for my business is Nutrition for the Messy Intersection of Pregnancy, Postpartum Health, and Feeding Tiny Humans. And that goes back to what we were just talking about, about how, you know, when you're, before you have kids, you're just responsible for feeding yourself. And then suddenly you are fully responsible for feeding another human. And, you know, if you're a birth mother, then you're dealing with changes in your body and you may not be totally sure how to feed yourself anymore. So Mm. like we were talking about, it's just messy. (laughs) And (laughs) so I'm going to be mostly targeting pregnant women or, you know, moms who already have one kid and are pregnant with the next, or, you know, are just, you know, feeding toddlers and elementary age kids and trying to navigate what to feed themselves and how to to you know, really make the bottom line your family's healthy relationship with food and what that understands. And you know, my motivation for this is what we were just talking about. There's not enough messages yeah. out there about it. So I'll be sharing stories of other women who have struggled with certain things. You know, like the pressure to breastfeed or 
you know, mm. comments on your body when you're, when you're pregnant or after you've delivered your baby? What does intuitive eating mean when you're also trying to do division of responsibility with your kids? Yeah. You know, just, <laughs> just sticky stuff that I think <laughs> needs a lot more attention. So. I'm hoping to launch it, it in a few weeks and it's become a, a passion project for me. And the more I've shared about it, the more people are like, wow, yeah, we, we really need a podcast yeah. like that. So that's encouraging to me. Yay. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be such a wealth of information and so helpful for you know women and families and, and caregivers to navigate that tricky transition. So we're so grateful for you and your work. And we're so eager to hear it when it launches. Yes. And Andrea will be one of my first guests. She talked about intuitive eating and pregnancy and how to navigate the messages that pregnant women get about what they should and shouldn't eat. Oh, yes. So lots of those. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So tell us what in your work, what are some of the most common questions and concerns that you hear from new parents about feeding their kids and how to make sure that they're feeding them in a really health supportive way? And what are, you know, what's, what's some of the stuff that, that moms should really know? So I think that goes back to what we were just talking about, about the messages that parents are getting from the media about, you know, childhood obesity, quote unquote, and making sure that your kids are healthy eaters. You know, the people who come into my office are just totally concerned about what's going into their kids' bodies and not what their relationship with food is. Mm -hmm. So I would say the most common question is, how do I get my kid to be a healthy eater? But that's not always the concern that I jump in to address right Right. away, you know, but it's tough, you know, even especially these days, now we have plant-based milks. Well, isn't that just inherently better than dairy milk and, you know, different messages that they get about things like that. And should their kids be eating too many carbs? And, you know, another huge struggle is the guilt that moms feel for buying processed foods or, you know, the stress that they feel for feeling like they need to make their own veggie nuggets from scratch, you know. So I try to help parents feel more comfortable, you know, looking at the nutrition label of say chicken nuggets and, you know, talk about, you know, the trade-off between your stress, your relationship with food and, you know, a quote unquote processed food and what that ultimately trickles down to in terms of what the kid, you know, if the kid's never allowed to have chicken nuggets and all their friends are allowed to have chicken nuggets, you know, what, mm-hmm. what might that translate to? So, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, like we're talking about when you're suddenly responsible for feeding a hundred percent feeding another human. I mean, that's what division of responsibility is. The parent is in charge of the what, you know, and that's not something people were necessarily had on their minds when they, and obviously when you have kids, you can feed them, but the burden of it is not something that people have on their minds going into parenthood. And it's a difficult thing to do just flat out based on, you know, how much time you have in your day. Then it's compounded by all the media messages that you get. Then it's compounded by your own relationship with food in your body. So I would say that those are the biggest struggles. But, you know, I also see families who have, you know, challenges breastfeeding or a food intolerance in breastfeeding, like the mom has to eliminate dairy from her diet. Mm. And, you know, especially if a woman has a history of dieting, what does it mean when a food is off limits and, you know, but it's not for the reasons of dieting and working through that kind of stuff. I do a lot of work with food allergies and helping families plan a safe diet for their kids and read food labels. Part of my inspiration for that is that around the time that my younger daughter turned one, we found out that she has allergies to peanuts and tree nuts. And that was, oh. whew, that was a tough time in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it's it was super scary. I like like I will say we were thinking about having a third kid, and I was like, nope. <laughs> if I have yeah. to deal with this, we're only having two kids. Like that's how scary it was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And having gone through that experience myself, I know when I'm working with a parent of a child with food allergies, like what a stress it is in their life. And I'm able to bring that empathy into the conversation, and it gets tricky because. Now a food is off limits. And right. I, li- I like to preach that no food is off limits. My kids eat Oreos and they eat sugar snap peas. And like they're all, <laughs> no food is off limits. Except in my house, you better not walk in the door with peanuts or tree nuts because that is off right. limits. And, you know, my, my daughter who 
does have food allergies is about two and a half right now. So she's still not totally in a place where she can understand what that means. And we've had a couple of experiences where she couldn't have a treat that the rest of her friends were having. And she's just crying. (laughs) It breaks my heart. I'll soon be navigating how to talk to her about that. I have a little bit of practice. Her older sister doesn't have food allergies, but I, she does understand what they are and and how her um, sister has them. And, And to be honest, my older kid doesn't, is rarely allowed to have those foods just from a safety perspective. So we talk about how they're off limits for her too. But I think that in my case, allowing all other foods really helps us understand exactly what an allergy is. And it's not like, you know, peanut butter is off limits because of the allergy, but Oreos are off limits because they're too much sugar. It's like, no, the only only food that is off limits is the allergy food. Right, right. And that you're able to kind of distinguish the clear difference between life threatening and just like how people prefer food. Yeah. And I'm sure that'll be a conversation that we continue to have as my kids get older. But to be honest, like I was mentioning earlier, I've never struggled with my own relationship with food. And I was really angry when she was diagnosed because like it felt like food betrayed me. Like I became a dietitian because I love food and you know, wow. all foods fit and I could live without peanut butter, but like almond butter, <laughs> I really wanted. Right. My- <laughs> and so, you know, eliminating those foods from my house and not all families with food allergies eliminate the food from their house, but it felt right to me to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it took me a while to sort of get, o- get over my anger about, you know, why can't I have the foods that, you know, I've always had in my diet and how do I shift, you know, okay, I used to have almond butter on toast. I can have sun butter on toast. Like, l- right. let me just be fr- like sun butter is no almond butter. <laughs> like, it's not a sun- <laughs> like we eat a lot of sun butter in my house, but and, you know, I mean, my kids go to school. I could I could eat it while they're gone. But then, you know, navigating, like, the guilt and, like, what if there's a little bit left on my lips when I give her a right. kiss? And, like, right. It's just, it's tricky. But, you know, the farther out that I've gotten from that experience and the more support I've gotten, because I will tell you, it was probably one of the most anxiety-inducing experiences of my life. You know, I love food. I became a dietitian because I love food and family meals. And, you know, suddenly a food being off limits was a very new experience to me. I really never dieted. So, you know, I'd never experienced a food being off limits. And, you know, we had to rework what we keep in our home and, you know, what I would eat, even, you know, even when the kids are at school, you know, I just felt too anxious having the food in the house to have it for my own lunch. So, you know, that's something I also help parents walk through when, you know, they have a child who's newly diagnosed. Kids are generally diagnosed when they're around, you know, six months, one years old, but it can, it can happen at any time. And it's a major shift mm-hmm. for the family often. And I just think, you know, food allergy families need so much more support because other, other parents are like, okay, cool. I won't, I won't give them peanut butter, you know, and that's, it's not just that, like you can't give a granola bar that was manufactured in a facility that also uses peanut butter. It's, it's stuff like that. So right. I actually started a Facebook group called self-care for allergy moms because I was getting a lot of benefit out of the food allergy Facebook groups that I was a part of, but they were always focused on the child and the child's well-being as as well they should, right? Like that's a very important thing. Yeah. But you know, what I was sort of picking up from other families' stories was like how overwhelming this is for the parents and Mm. it usually falls on the mom. So, you know, I, I certainly recommend some of those groups to my clients. But I also have my self-care for allergy moms group because I just really think that it's a unique situation and really only other allergy moms understand. So in that group, we're able to lift each other up and give each other recommendations. And it's not just like, I need a cupcake recipe that's dairy-free. It's like, I need a new book to read to get my mind off of this. What do you guys got? You know, so it's not all nutrition stuff necessarily, but that's well, been a and that's experience. I think that's so crucial because... Hardly any of this is just about the nutrition and the, you know, the A plus B equals C. It's more of like the, the shame and the feelings of guilt and how to navigate this space when we're already kind of being, you know, sucked dry and feeling like the support is kind of there, but a lot of this responsibility falls on us. And so having that community. Yeah. The emotional labor, labor part of it. Yes. Yeah. What you said, you know, in your experience falls mostly on moms. Yeah. Yeah. I I can only imagine, you know, having a new allergy, you know, when 
you know, if, if people are kind of up to date on research, there's a lot of newer emerging research on, you know, inter- earlier introduction of, of allergen foods. And even if you do all of those things, quote unquote, right, you know, your child could still end up with a pretty severe food allergy. And, mm. you know, oh. I, you know, in my experience counseling clients, it's such a huge shift, you know, suddenly, suddenly all these staples, like you were saying, Diana, all these different staples are out of the picture. If their child is going to, you know, daycare or school, you know, how is a school going to manage that food allergy? Or are they really, are they really like aware and, you know, like all of those things that are really out of our control all of a sudden. Yeah. I can only imagine that that's a very, yeah. And it's tough. Like I've, we've used multiple daycares since my daughter was diagnosed and one of them is like totally on top of it. But our previous one was like, yeah, cool. Like we won't give it to her. What's the big deal? And I was like, no, I need you to be more supportive. That's probably hard because now, not only when it comes to a life-threatening allergy, not only are you in charge of what you're feeding your child, you're dependent on the community to yes. respect the boundaries of what can be, you know, what your child can even be exposed to. Yeah, definitely. And th- that gets really tricky because, like, for example, my kid's school is peanut and tree nut free. But, you know, if the kid is eating, you know, Reese's puff cereal in the car or on yes. the way to school and still has some on their mouth or something like that, or, you know, a lot of parents are like, oh, Timmy with the peanut allergy, nobody bring Reese's to the class party, mm-hmm. like as if it's yeah. the family's fault or something like that. And then it gets even stickier when, so my daughter has peanut and tree nut allergies, which are kind of like the most respected allergies, Mm -hmm. but you know, a family with a dairy allergy or a wheat allergy, eggs, forget about it. You know, you're never going to find a school that's dairy free, right? you know? So, I mean, I know of families that homeschool because of this or, you know, even, you know, okay. So there's the peanut free table at most elementary schools, but, you know, what about dairy? Like, you know, is the kid having to eat all by himself, you know, or, you know, it's just, oh, ugh, right. it's a so, lot. It's a big burden. Ball. It's a whole, a whole other ball game. It's yeah. a whole ball of emotions yeah. and, and what ifs, it sounds. Yeah. But I'm glad you brought up that information about how, how we introduce allergens has changed the, the research on that. It, we, we are encouraged to introduce allergens early around six months of age and often keep them in the baby's diet often. And I teach workshops on starting solids and that's something I always include. But like I said, my daughter was diagnosed around age one. So during that period from six months to age one, I thought I was doing everything right. Mm. And, and she didn't have any reactions. Not, looking back, like maybe she had like a little redness or something like that, but she didn't have any reactions when we first introduced them. And I actually ended up writing a post on my website called My Child's Food Allergy Feels Like the World's Biggest Mom Fail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because it, the way that that research is put out in the media is like a new way to prevent peanut allergies, yes. Yes. which is that title is misleading. It's new research shows that we can reduce the incidence of peanut allergies with, you know, early introduction, but that's right. not a catchy title, right? right? And so on the one hand, I thought that I had done everything right in terms of doing the early introduction. But then like when I started to think about it, it was like, wow, I did peanut butter, but did I really do cashews? I don't know. Maybe I should have done cashews more often. And then she wouldn't have, you know, a cashew, like, you know, looking back and just like feeling like I should have been more totally focused on, you know, is she having, you know, cashews three times a week and almost three times a week. And like, Right, <laughs> we like, shouldn't put that, but like, there's enough to worry about when you have a six yeah. month old baby. Well, and I was just going to say, it goes back into that kind of like frenzy that we feel, mm-hmm. especially relating it back to just kind of like diet culture of, you know, okay, now I have to be really, you know, methodical about how I do this because if yeah. not, it's my fault. And it's, yeah. I did this to my child. I am responsible for this. I could have done better when mm-hmm. It's really not that black and white, but it's such a common mom, you know, or parent caregiver shame cycle of, you know, how has this fallen on me and how, how did I mess this up? But it's, it's not that, that's not it at all. And it's so far from it being like, okay, let's point the finger and it, and it's your fault for not introducing cash Mm. three times, you know, (laughs) it's like, but it's so easy to put our minds in that place. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that is exactly the sentiment that often comes across when I'm working with a parent of a picky eater because they start to feel like they started being permissive with the kid and they should have done more food exposures. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all he wants is chicken nuggets. So, you know, I'm just, I just give it to him. And, you know, that's really tough one to navigate because on the one hand, you know, yes, we know that, you know, a diverse diet and multiple food exposures does help kids accept more food. But on the other hand, like, I know you have a job, like just like I have a job and you get home at the end of the day and you're not necessarily going to be pulling out the quinoa and the kale, you know? So I I try to help parents navigate that. And then, you know, in terms of what kind of challenges do parents currently face, sometimes it's just, you know, getting something on the table that's, you know, maybe not always chicken nuggets, (laughs) but is, is, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I, my kid, I think my kid ate chicken nuggets last night, (laughs) but, but, you know, is something that's relatively, you know, easy and has, you know, vegetables and whole grains and all the, you know, quote unquote healthy stuff, Mm -hmm. but doesn't require hours in the kitchen. That's another big one of mine. And then like what, you know, I don't know grocery hacks. I don't really want to call it a hack, but like, you know, one of my favorite things is like jarred tikka masala sauce Mm. because it's got a lot of flavor. And then you look at the label and it's like tomato puree, onions, garlic, ginger, like all stuff that if I had the time, I would cook it, (laughs) but I don't want anyone to feel like they can't rely on a grocery product like that which is great because it, you know, it's really strong flavors and it can help the kids be exposed to a new cuisine. Right. And all you got to do is pop up in the jar. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot yeah. of parents, you know, myself included, I used to come from a place where I would look at that jar and I'd be like, okay, these are all ingredients I have in my pantry. I should just make this myself. And I'd right. put it back on the on the shelf because I'd be like, you know, that's being lazy or, you know, I can make it and I have a chefing background. Like, how dare you take a shortcut, you know? And I'd find myself in this shame spiral. And then I just all clicked one day where I was like, you know what? The jar tikka masala is going to actually make tikka masala. Then in the kitchen with all the ingredients might not make tikka masala. (laughs) I love that. So here we are. We're going to buy this jar because like you said, Diana, I'm going to expose my child to this experience Mm. and I'm going to make it as easy on myself as possible. Absolutely. Because it's hard. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it is. And you know, so th- it's funny that we're talking about tikka masala sauce because I actually, one of my latest recipes on my website is a homemade tikka masala sauce, <laughs> which is only because they all say that they're processed in a facility that also uses nuts. nuts. <laughs> so I used to buy that jarred one and my mm. favorite one, which is Trader Joe's. I bought it all the time. And then we went like a year without eating it because I wasn't willing to make it. And I couldn't find one that wasn't processed in a facility with nuts. And then finally I came around to making it. And like in that year that transpired, my older kid who used to love it was like, what is this? <laughs> I'm not eating that. And I was like, ah. if I just, you know, so, yeah. but you know, other things, I mean, spaghetti sauce, I am buying that in a jar. Right. You can believe me, yes. you know, and yeah. So well, it's, and it, it just but, goes to show that experience is a perfect example of how, Every single kitchen and every family and household is so different. And a convenience food for one person could be harmful to another person. And something that seems so nourishing and laborious and made in love could actually be really stressful and, you know, spiraling. And when we're pushing ourselves outside of our, our limits, our we're limits. pushing our boundaries in terms of times and time yeah. and energy. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That, that speaks to kind of like the mom shame culture of like, yeah. this is how you should yeah. do it. Well, no, it's totally like we're all just treading water here when you have young kids that you're trying to feed. Andrea's over here laughing because she's like, you're making this sound absolutely horrifying. (laughs) I'm glad she's informed going into it though. I'm I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of mom friends that are very in with the real talk. So that's, you know, but I will say like, you know, I think Diana, when we recorded the other day, before coming to this like non-diet mentality for myself, you know, I did have these kind of like grander ideas of what it would be like t- as a parent and oh, as a mom, like, totally. oh, well, I'll be making all these like purees from scratch and stuff like, and you know, yeah, the, no. what, what the things that are going to be like coming so easily and, you know, 
I'll, I'll be baking bread. Like, you know, what am I? Like, that's not the 1960s here. Like, <laughs> and, and like, cause some people for them, like, I totally, I deal with clients all the time where like we talk about cooking and falling in love with cooking. And for some people, you know, that's a stress reducer, you know, that they get to like, go in the kitchen and have some art form. But the reality is, is time isn't, you know, you, you're not adding hours to your day when you have kids and it's okay to like you, you kind of were alluding to like, it's okay to say, you know what? Okay. Making a puree from scratch, although that sounds really wonderful. And you know, maybe that's something you do do sometimes. It doesn't have to be something you do all the time or right. every time. Right. And I, I was saying to my therapist actually recently, I was like, I was such a perfect parent until I had kids because I had these grand ideas of all the ways I was going to be amazing at being a mom. And then my very own children humbled me and made me realize it's not that, it's not that easy, you know, yeah. but you are wonderful. <laughs> I think we're all wonderful mothers. It's just a matter of the ideal that we had in our head and right. coming to terms with. Kind of like the thin ideal, like that unrealistic picture of what you know, mommyhood looks like, right? Right, right. Mm. Yeah, well, and what's depicted in the media, right? Like, especially, yeah. I think of, like, Instagram accounts that have, like, 100,000 followers and beautiful photos, and it's, like, a mommy lifestyle blogger or something right. like that. And it's all, like, her, like, the girls in white dresses just totally get to me. I, know. <laughs> I would never put my kid in a white dress. <laughs> I know. You know, but, the, the, you know, those accounts have tons of followers, and they're kind of the new, you know, it is media. That is media that we consume. And like, even though we might see like a sitcom on TV with a frazzled mom, you know, we also are you know, a- admiring other images in media of like, everything is so perfect or, yeah, you know, that, that kind of thing. So that's why I, yeah. in in my measly little Instagram account, I try to keep it real <laughs> and, and I will be doing so on my podcast as yeah. well. Yeah. I think it's so important just because it sparks the the topics of conversation that we really want the answers to when we're going through all of this, you know, yeah. the perfect persona or facade, it doesn't, it, you know, it might not spark those conversations around the things that are harder to get the information on. It's not, it's not as approachable. Right. 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 Yeah, definitely. This, I mean, this whole conversation kind of brings it back to me or brings it back for me, in my mind, is that we are promoting this idea that like all foods can fit, right? right? So like, if you want to make homemade whatever from scratch, you do that. If and we, but also, you know, we're not better or worse for using frozen chicken nuggets or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. I always think back to you know what did my parents raise me on, you know, mm-hmm. and I was you know, like I've said before, very fortunate. I have a good relationship with food and I was exposed to all different kinds of food. You know, I remember going through a, you know, a year where we had like frozen manicotti, like at least and, and garlic bread, like at least once a week. Mm-hmm. And I mean, how many of us were raised on chicken or not chicken nuggets, but like fish sticks. That was a staple right. in my house. Right. Or mm-hmm. He's smothered in ketchup. Was the only way that <laughs> yeah. peas. And, you know, so I think, yeah, just coming back to that idea of all foods can fit and you're not a better or worse parent for feeding your kids a certain way. Yeah. And giving your kid that exposure to that variety of foods is going to foster a good, a better relationship with food for them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point because, you know, I talked to my own mom about this kind of stuff and what's become so clear is that she didn't have these messages that, that our generation gets about like, you know, make sure your kid gets a hundred foods before they turn age one. And, you know, even like kale was not like not even a thing. Right. And, you know, same deal. I grew up on, you know, Stouffer's lasagna and Campbell's chicken noodle soup. And recently someone, another dietitian asked me for my, my best tip to, you know, help make family meals happen. And I just was like, because, you know, I, lo- I talk about family meals all the time. So my best tip, what is my best tip? And I was like, you know what? And I thought back to my own childhood and my own mom. It's like, you don't need to make something new every night. You don't, you don't need to be hitting Pinterest for, you know, macaroni and cheese with broccoli, cauliflower sauce recipe. Like right. if you just have like your 10 things. Yep. And maybe they're homemade, maybe they're not. Not only is that going to take some pressure off of you in terms of not finding a new recipe every night, but it, you know, for kids, they like that comfort and, you know, it helps them, you know, recognize, okay, I've had this before. 
Even when the first time after a year of no tikka masala, when I introduced (laughs) tikka masala to my older kid, she didn't eat it the first time. And I called it chicken tikka masala. And then the next time I made it, I called it tomato sauce chicken. (laughs) (laughs) And she recognized it. She thought, you know, okay, I like tomato sauce. I like chicken. (laughs) And, And now she eats it whenever I serve it. And that's like one of like maybe maybe 15 or 20 meals that are like my go-tos. And, and I would say 15 and 20 is on the high end. Like if you need to just start with 10, especially when you've just had, you know, your first kid and you just like, you need to you know, have a rotation of things in your freezer. And like, I honestly yeah. don't care if it's Stouffer's lasagna or homemade lasagna. If you're if right. making homemade lasagna is your jam, go for it. But you know, it's it, having those things that you can be your go-tos is both going to take pressure off of you. And it's going to help your kids have some, you know, familiarity with the foods in their home and, you know, something like whenever I make, as long as we're talking about tikka masala all the time, like I'll continue on the example. (laughs) Whenever I make it, I put a different steamed vegetable on the side. Right. And, you know, and so that's how I incorporate diversity in, into our meals is there'll be a side dish that kind of rotates in and out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if, if three weeks go by and it's always steamed broccoli, I'm not, I'm not sweating it. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so what about like, I'm going to share a personal story that happened recently and it's going to segue into this question. So my, how old is she now? She was about to be three and a half. She loves pesto, which I recognize is a nut. So I'm sorry that we're talking about Well, it's one, it's one of a handful of things that I make myself. You did. There's a recipe on my website for sunflower seed pesto. (laughs) So she loved, loved, loved pesto ever since she was little and started eating food. And she's, it's always been like a really easy go-to for our family. And I don't really think that much time has elapsed, but maybe it had since I had served it to her last. So I made it again recently and I added frozen spinach into it just to like diversify the pesto, right? Mm -hmm. So I give it to her with ravioli and Ruthie, my nine month old is eating it and so happy. I'm sitting at the table eating it so happy. And suddenly Lila just scrunches her nose and goes, yuck. And I was like, what? You love this, right? And it totally threw me for a loop because I was like, I thought I was giving her one of the meals that was like a sure thing in our house. And suddenly she was like, "Uh uh-uh, no way. And, you know, we have a rule where we have a no thank you bite in our house. And so you have to have a bite. And you can say, no, this isn't for me, but if it's a new food, that's kind of how we encourage her. And so she usually, sometimes she doesn't take the no thank you bite. You know, we don't force feed her anything, but most of the time she will take the no thank you bite after a little bit of conversation. And so her negotiation this time was, I will take that no thank you bite if you lick all the pesto or most of the pesto off of it. And I was like, okay. So I literally licked the pesto <laughs> off of the ravioli and it wasn't perfect because it's pesto like you can't right. really clean it right, right? not rinsing it, it in the sink and so I like basically cleaned it off and like I used my hand and like it finally got to like a satisfactory place where she was like okay mom that's enough like you don't need to lick off any more pesto and she's like I will try it and then she tried it And she was like, hmm, and started getting all excited and was like so happy and then ate the rest of her plate, like no problem. (laughs) And I was like, I have just been duped. Like, like, your smart little toddler brain just totally put me through the ringer just to see how far I'd go. And I fell for it. (laughs) And I know better, right? Like, I'm so familiar with all these practices and all the things that, you know, we talk about here on the this podcast. And I was just like, oh my God, I just had one of those moments. But at the end of it, I was like, I would have done it again if it got her to eat that meal again. You know, like I would have gone through that whole ringer. But so that long story is just to illustrate this question, which is what do you say to parents who, you know, are used to their you know, babies who are just starting to eat, toddlers that are just becoming toddlers that are super happy to eat anything you give them. And then that hard right turn into, you know, picky eater, toddler, kids, you know, zone. 
yeah. do with those parents. <laughs> I end up I end up explaining this a lot. And so what it goes back to is the child developing his or her sense of self and expressing his or her autonomy and even just like recognizing that like there's a difference between, you know, a rattle and a block. There's a difference between ravioli and spaghetti. And, you know, I'm going to express my autonomy by saying only ravioli all the time, no spaghetti whatever, <laughs> you know, you know, to a degree, I just explain the, how normal child development progresses. And then, you know, really what I mostly do is coach parents through their behavior at the dinner table in order to hopefully set the child up for, you know, the, the sort of best case scenario in, you know, if and when he or she comes around to accepting more foods. So it definitely gets tough because of the pressure that parents feel to have, you know, healthy eaters. I feel like parents are pressured not only to have healthy eaters, quote unquote, you know, by which I mean like a child who eats vegetables, but parents feel pressure to have, you know, just like they want their kid to be reading at, you know, an early age, they want to basically be able to show off that they have an adventurous eater and like, yeah. Oh, you know, he'll, I mean, I, we eat seaweed snacks and he loves sushi and, you know, anything I serve, you know, it's, it's, it's like a bragging point or something. And I've met a handful of people who basically lucked out and got a kid like that. Okay. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's just kind of like this one of many more pressures that we put on ourselves. So what I end up doing is explaining that it is perfectly normal in terms of the child's development. And then what the parent can do is basically continue to be level-headed. You put it, you put the food on the table, you model that you're eating it yourself and you leave it at that. And I actually feel like I've been talking about a lot of posts on my website. I have a post on my website about, (laughs) it's called a simple exercise to reframe the way you think about what your child eats. And it's a picture of a high chair with three toys on it. And if you put a rattle and a rubber duck and, you know, crunchy toy or something like that on your child's high chair and they only wanted to play with the rattle and they pushed the duck off of the high chair. Would you feel personally offended? Would you feel like, oh my gosh, I've got to get the kid to play with the duck. He only wants to play with the rattle. Why is he not playing with the duck? Okay. Maybe if I put the duck on my head, he'll play with the duck. Like (laughs) we don't do that. You know, and as far as the kid is concerned, they're like, listen, this rattle is my jam right now. Right. <laughs> and, right. And they you know, probably will play with the duck or whatever. You know, yeah. There's, there's yeah. Where that duck is their jam. And right yeah. now, it's not. <laughs> So I try to coach parents to be level-headed through it, but there is, you know, there's an element of continuing to expose the kid to, you know, I try to frame it not as like expose the kid to a hundred foods before age one or whatever, or maybe before age two, because that's when the picky eating phase generally comes in. But what's most important to me is that the child generally accepts the foods of the family. So you know, if, if my go-to meals are, you know, spaghetti and then baked fish and then tikka masala, you know, I don't want to be jumping through hoops to make something that my kid likes. Those are the foods that I like to eat. They're easy for me. They fit into my schedule. My goal is for my children ultimately to accept more or less, you know, not a hundred percent, but accept the foods of my family. Mm. So I coach parents to just continue to offer those foods in a non-pressured way and model eating it themselves. And, you know, most of the time, at least when we're talking about children who are developing typically, you know, we see some progress when we get into children with sensory issues or autism. That's a whole other ballgame. Right. And, and those parents need a lot of support as well. But, you know, it's, it's a long game. Like feed, I think really, I really think feeding kids is a long game and yeah. it's not about what goes into your child's belly on any given night. It's about to a degree, it's important for them to have overall, you know, good nutrition that's going to foster their growth. And then the long game is their healthy relationship with food so that when they leave the house and they're on their own, mm-hmm. they're able to navigate, you know, be, basically be naturally born intuitive eaters and never lose that sense once they reach adulthood. Yeah, I love that. And I think that that's like, you know, the zooming out 
I think that could be hard for parents to say, you know, but zooming out, I'm really worried that all my kid is actually eating are chicken nuggets. And it's like the small wins every other day or every so often. But that's not exactly what you're saying. You're not saying, you know, zoom out and over the course of time, like that's where you'll see the healthy eating. What you're saying is zoom out and see how you're able to foster a healthy relationship with food and how that will serve them over the course of their life because you know there that's there is a difference between that and that's what we've been talking about this whole episode but like truly the the encouraging and the fostering of that relationship yeah and that's why i start every client saying that that's the priority that's the the hand that's up by my forehead yeah. <laughs> whereas the actual nutrition that's going into your child's body is it's not not important i, I want children to be healthy <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> but you know when when i give my kids cupcakes or you know oreos or whatever which we we have those kinds of things multiple times a day you know, is it quote unquote a healthy food? Okay, conventional as a dietitian, okay, I, I guess I would say it's not like the most nutritious food, but it is a healthy choice in my opinion, right. because I'm teaching them to navigate those foods in the mix of all the other foods. Yes. And I, I love that, that distinction. Me too. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, yes, as a dietitian or as, you know, somebody who knows anything about nutrition, you know, we know that, you know, Oreos are not nutritionally equivalent to apples. But it is a healthy choice in that situation as we are, you know, again, fostering that healthy relationship with food. And I love what you said about like the family food. And it kind of goes back to like the family values and the family rituals and experiences where, you know, some days having popcorn on the couch with Oreos watching a movie is a really nourishing activity. And some days having orange slices at a soccer game is a really nourishing activity. And it's all about kind of the balance of enjoying those experiences as they are and not sweating them for what they're not. Exactly. And I would even say, you know, this happens to us on the weekends all the time, like with birthday parties and and things like that. My, especially my four-year-old will end up having like more sugar than I would ideally want her to have. Mm -hmm. But what is nourishing for her in that moment is me staying level-headed and not, you know, freaking out that she's had her fifth serving of sugar today. Right. What's, What's helping her in that moment is that for however much my, you know, alarms might be going off in my brain, what she sees is, oh, what a yummy cupcake. Right. And that's it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard. So Diana, we do want to be respectful of your time. So we'll just kind of start to wrap up here a little bit, but I'm curious, you know, as we had said before, you know, both all three of us in this conversation are in kind of the non-diet and health at every size camp in terms of, you know, philosophies and how you practice. And, you know, do you have any thoughts or insight on why we're seeing maybe an increased number of uh, dietitians in particular and other healthcare practitioners that are choosing to align themselves with intuitive eating and non-diet approaches, and especially those who may work with parents and families and kids? Yeah, it's, you know... I don't know if I could exactly put my finger on it. I would say it definitely has something to do with how intuitive eating is finally getting its due moment. Mm-hmm. I believe you were also at the the session at our annual nutrition conference where the founders of intuitive eating yeah. uh, spoke for the first time on a national stage together. And it was standing room only. It was a uh, in church. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I know it was just, it was such, it was like a, all the dietitians that you know you and I generally hang around with who are already in this camp, we were on a high from just like the buzz that it's getting, basically. <laughs> and so Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush are releasing a new edition of the book in June. So it's kind of like just like 2020 is like the year of intuitive eating. I do see some articles in the media that, you know, some often intuitive eating is co-opted in the media, but like some articles have been getting it right recently. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I think it's almost like, you know, same as like the keto diet became a trend, like however many years ago and everybody jumped on that train. It's almost like it's a train that people are jumping on, but like, in my opinion, it's the right train. 
it's right. going to the right destination. Yeah. And you know, people are learning about it that way. And I hope that like me, people are finding that it aligns with their values, you know, because that's why when I really think about it, like one thing that has always informed my work is that my mom is in a larger body and, but she's like, so flipping healthy, like she's healthier than me. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, you know, I know that that's an anecdote. That's not, you know, that doesn't prove that like everybody who has her same body shape is exactly as healthy as she is. But when people see that in their own lives, it helps fuel, you know, it's just like knowing like if you grew up in a household that was really conservative and didn't believe that people should be homosexual, but then like you have a really good friend who is gay and you're like, that friend's cool. Like, why would I think that gay is not cool? And so as we start to, you know, respect people in all sizes of bodies and when people have someone in their lives who, you know, doesn't fit the quote unquote, you know, normal body size, we internalize, you know, how maybe what we're, what we've been learning in school or what learning from the media is not the full story. And so, so I think intuitive eating is having a moment, hopefully health at every size will be having a similar moment, but you know, to a degree, I don't, I don't even care as long as more people are jumping on the train. I don't care how they got to the station. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I mean, as long as we're planting seeds, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think it speaks exactly like what you're saying about people's just values and respecting people and respecting that as we're moving forward as a collective, we're starting to understand that no two people can possibly live their lives the same way. And the same is true for nourishing our bodies and for moving our bodies. And the less prescriptive we can be about wellness and our children in particular, I think we can all take a collective sigh of relief and take that deep breath and say, okay, this is going to be a little bit easier now. And because of that, I feel more confident and I have a clear head about making decisions that truly do benefit my family and my kids. And that's the bottom line, right? That's really what we all want is for everybody to feel empowered to make themselves available to what feels good and to what works. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say that for as much as we're seeing more practitioners become aligned with health of every size, there's so much work to be done in terms of bringing these messages to the general public. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I live, um, I'm, I formerly lived on the East Coast, which is where I lived when I started to, you know, get into a lot of these messages, but I live in Oklahoma now and people ask me what I do. <laughs> and I, Sometimes I, if I, the second I say I'm a dietitian, they're like, oh, I've got to get my kid to eat healthier. Or oh, they ask me, you know, can they help, can I help them lose five pounds? And I go, let me tell you about my <laughs> approach. And like, I've started like not even sharing it because it's, yeah. you can't, it's a, there's no elevator speech no. for health at every size. So, you know, I try, you know, in my workshops, I try to teach, you know, kind of introduce the concept and, you know, it goes back to my baby steps approach and that I'm using baby steps myself to even get this message across here in in Oklahoma. So, absolutely. No, it's, you're right. It's really hard to kind of infiltrate in this topic, I guess, that it's like, there's so much nuance and there's so much to describe about it. It's like, where do I even begin? So you just kind of have to smile and nod and say like, maybe this will come, this message will reach you, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's why I think it's been so beneficial to see some of the articles on intuitive eating in the popular press, because when the general public comes across that, it at least plants a seed. And then, you know, maybe if they they find out that there's a non-diet dietitian in their area, you know, Mm -hmm. they can get the snowball rolling that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think if it's all right, all around, we'll, you know, we'll kind of end the conversation there, but thank you so much, Diana. My pleasure. Thank you. This has really been a wonderful conversation. I'm really excited to get this episode out. Yeah. I can't wait for our audience to hear this. And we will definitely link to your website and some of the posts that you had mentioned. Yes. But If you want to share where else people can find you and learn more about your work, that would be great. Yeah. So my website is dianakrice.com, which is also most of my social media handles. Instagram and Twitter are Diana K. Rice. And on Facebook, I'm Facebook slash Baby Steps RD. Yay. And you have yeah. a link to your self-care for allergy moms as well, that Facebook group? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's on my Facebook page. I'd be happy to oh. send it to you as well. Okay. Right. We'll link it up. 
We'll link all of those things. Thank you so much, Diana. And we can't wait to talk again soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Food Confidence Podcast. I'm Jennifer Bravo. And I'm Andrea Paul. If you have any questions about the things you heard in today's episode or have topics you'd like us to discuss in the future, send us an email at foodconfidencepod at gmail.com or follow us and message us on Instagram at foodconfidencepod.